speak. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath is the danger, and God's salvation is his provision to deliver us from his wrath. He explains that God provides a righteousness in Christ that we do not possess in ourselves, being sinful and rebellious creatures, and we receive divine righteousness by faith in the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as God provided a sacrifice to Abraham, do you remember when Abraham was asked to take his son up onto the mountaintop, Mount Moriah, which is, if you study in the Bible, is actually the hill in which Jerusalem later sat, right outside Jerusalem there. God provided a sacrifice to Abraham to spare his son Isaac. So in the same way, God offers up his son, his only son, so that we might be spared. And as you move forward in Romans, it becomes clear we have not only been spared from something, which is God's wrath, but we have been rescued to something or for something. It's said very simply in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. The law of God condemned us justly, for God's law is good. But you know, the law, as good as it is, cannot save. The law of God cannot save sinners. It only points out our sinfulness. Because how can you be saved by the very law which you violated? So the Lamb of God comes, the Lamb of God saves and frees us from the law. Not to do whatever we want, but to do what our Savior wants that we might bear fruit for God, he says. And then he goes on in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. When you're born again in Christ, you don't see this as a bunch of old musty rules that you have to keep and, oh, it's too bad and all. It's, it is a living expression of the glory of God's holy nature which we delight to live and to keep. It's, it's, our, it's our way. We're saved to live a new life. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 12, that new life is described in great detail. We said that Romans 12 and 13 are chapters devoted to describing the authentic Christian life. And it begins in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, presenting ourselves a living sacrifice to God, acceptable to God, and then being transformed, it says, by the renewing of our mind to do that which is good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of God. So we will not live like the world does. It says not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we don't live like the world, but we live the way God wants us to. And what follows is not the way the world lives, but he describes the way we are to live. Let's pick up his discussion in verse 9 again of chapter 12 just to review a little bit. Be, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, hate, what is evil, Cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Then in chapter 13, as we've seen in the past weeks, he discusses our duty to human government. And then he sums it all up in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? If you've noticed, we've come full circle. The law condemned us. Christ redeemed us by living the law perfectly and dying as the spotless lamb in our place, freeing us from the penalty of the law. And now, joined to him by faith and transformed in our minds, enlivened by the Spirit, living by love and not regulation, we are doing just what the law asked us to do. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. We are saved from the law to the law, really. And the reason that had to happen like that is because as children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, our delight was in law-breaking, not law-keeping. So we fail miserably to live anything like the law demands. And people even turn to religion in a, as a means to hold God off and design our own way and hold him at a distance and put him in a little box that we invent, you know, man-made religions, and he won't have it. He is infinitely glorious and holy and powerful, and he will have it his way. And in his love, his way is to rescue us, just like he rescued Isaac from being sacrificed on Mount Moriah. He could crush us and start over. But God, as the psalm says, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. So we live for him to please him. And out of a thanksgiving and a prayerful heart and praise for his mercy, we fulfill the law by love. But notice now, Romans chapter 13 does not end at verse 10, even though that's sort of the logical place to end. Paul has a final thought he wants to relate regarding authentic Christianity. The logical summary of all it has to say here is love. That's what we're saved to. Love God, 
love our neighbor, the two great commandments, as Jesus said. But simply by way of exhortation, because our old nature is still nipping at our heel, because our old flesh is calling us from the path of love and obedience, he asks us to remember what time it is. You know what time it is? You'd better know what time it is because the time materially affects what you're supposed to be doing with yourself. You know what time it is. Romans 13, 11. And this do knowing the time. The word this refers to what came before. It could refer to the whole thing. Chapter 12 all the way through Probably it's referring right off, coming right off verse 9 and 10 here, which sum up the whole section. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Do this, knowing the time. What time is it? It's time to be awake, he says. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, verse 11. Now, he's not talking about getting up in the morning, is he? No. He's talking about the age, not the day. He's talking about the era. In God's economy of things, in God's plan, you need to know what time it is and act accordingly. Paul uses this metaphor of day and night and light and dark and wakefulness and sleep because in the big scheme of things, what time is it? Well, he says... Do this, knowing the time it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Whoa, that sounds cool. There's clearly a sense of urgency here because of the time. Salvation is nearer, he says, than when we believe. Now that's a very understated, non-sensational, but urgent way to remind us of what God is doing. Because as we often say here, it's not about us. It's about Him. What is God doing? And where do we fit into His plan? History, which is his divine plan, is moving forward. And what Paul is saying is we're not waiting for the major event anymore. It has already happened. Meaning what? Christ has come. Christ has come. And that changes everything. Everything. Nothing's the same. So now we find ourselves expecting again, waiting for the final consummation and Messiah's glorious reign. That's what we're waiting for. And we can't sleep now, he says. He has come and we have all this stuff to do in anticipation of the day when God reconciles the world to himself in Christ and the day of reckoning comes to all. Now, salvation in the New Testament is spoken of with all three tenses, past, present, and future. Because there's a sense in which it's done, and a sense in which we live in it now, and there's a sense in which it is not yet. Right? 
Past tense because our standing in Christ is secure. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Past tense, it's done deal. It's present because we are in process. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God because we're in process. Future as here in Romans because the full experience of it still lies ahead. But all of it is due to the grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. So His coming is sets in motion the work of God which will lead to the great consummation. And we're to be a part of that. We're to live like that's exactly what's happened because that's exactly what has happened. So the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 28, I think it says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. So to be awake is to live in the reality of His coming, to accomplish the work of our salvation, the perfect sacrifice, and the knowledge of His future return in glory. He's come once to save, He'll come again in glory. So it's not time to sleep. You shouldn't be insensible asleep to what God is doing, what you exist for, what this church thing is all about. You shouldn't be sleeping through that. Church is not a morality club or a, a gathering of religious folk to help each other get through the next day. I mean, it does do that, but that's not what it's all about. The church, meaning God, Christ's people, those who belong to Him, are to move forward. They're to move His message forward so everyone can benefit from it. That's the whole purpose. And the message is the simple gospel revealed in John's gospel witness which says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's not a message to sleep through. Even if you've heard it a million times, it's not. God isn't disinterested. That's what it's saying. God's not far away. He's not abandoned us. He hasn't turned His back on us despite all the stuff that we've done. That's what it's saying. He became a man like us, a living, breathing human being. He lived our life. He did it perfectly, just like we're supposed to. And when we look at Him, Christ, we see holiness and purity and light and wisdom, but love most of all. Love, compassion, humility, gentle service. So then, willingly, by divine plan, he dies a death on a Roman cross, on Passover, so that God's wrath will pass over us. Now, does that good news make you sleepy? Because it shouldn't. No, it's time not to snore through life. God is waking us up. He's shaking our souls and He's saying, Wake up! Imagine how Paul and the others must have felt living in the immediate aftermath of His coming. I mean, He was just here. And how small they must have felt. You could just kind of imagine these few men just standing on the edge of an empire 
the greatest empire of its day, one of the greatest empires ever, an empire of pagan darkness just stretched out before them mile after mile after mile and city after city and province after province and state after state all ruled by these great powers. Centuries of entrenched idolatry and gross immorality and carnality. And behind them is this old religious system in Jerusalem rejecting and hostile and persecuting. And their attitude was, wake up. We've got work to do. And because God was in it, they were spectacularly successful. We have the exact same challenge. Because, you know, the dark clouds are gathering again. And it's been that way for a while now. The truth is hated and suppressed and dismissed. In other places around the world, violently persecuted. Academia and the media and the government and the arts are all arrayed against the truth. It is an absolutely impossible task. So what are we supposed to do? Wake up. That's what we're supposed to do. Fall asleep? No, not now. We are to gently and lovingly but confidently move his message forward. How can we ever win? Because God is still in it. He is. He's still in it. The same God that animated the early church animates the church today. And as much error as there is in the church today, there was error in the early church too. We fight that too. But we move forward. We could be just like everybody else. Just swim in the muck of the world and make up our own way and live for the moment and get as much as we can and then die. We could do it that way. Or we could respond to the Spirit's rousing and shaking and wake up and get going and do what God wants us to do and simply, delightedly, faithfully live for Him. That's what we could do. Look, look on the horizon because the day is dawning. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I love it in the early, early morning. That real brief time when the black of night is just giving way to that sort of ever-expanding light and it's really dim, but there's a difference between it being pitch black and the dawn just starting. I just really like that. Because of the habits of my life, I often get to see that moment and I, I just love it. It's cool. Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. That's what he's describing. What do we do? Keep reading. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, now that Christ has come, the day has begun to dawn. It's not as dark as it was, he says. It's time to do daytime things. And I think Paul is using an analogy common to people that lived in pagan urban areas like Rome. Because most debauchery and wickedness happens at night. People work during the day. You got to sell at the market during the day or fix things or do that or work your job or be whatever. People have to assume their responsibilities. They have to try to keep a clear head for business. But at night, that's when things let go. Still that way, isn't it? Pretty much. In pagan cities and modern cities, night crawls with evil and wild behavior. And that's when artificial happiness 
is drunk or inhaled or snorted. And that's when inhibitions are loosened and wickedness abounds. But with the first light of morning, the party is signaled to sort of start winding down. Oh gosh, there's daylight. Better start heading for home. That's the last call to sleep it off or freshen up or try to look respectable again. So Paul says the Christian's life is like that on a grand scale. Before we knew the Lord, we were in darkness, just doing our own thing. But with Him, day has come. And it's time to get respectable again. Permanently. The madness and the wildness and the wickedness doesn't belong anymore. There's no place for it. It's not fitting. It's over. The day is dawning. With Jesus, the day has dawned and the light increases and our souls are illuminated with God's love and His holiness. So we gird ourselves for the task at hand. Paul calls it putting on the armor of light. What a wonderful image suggesting preparedness in truth and in virtue and in wisdom. It's time for daylight living, he says. Not the stuff we did in the dark time of our lives, but what's consistent with the coming of Christ and the newness that he's brought to us. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. He lists these three pairs of behaviors and attitudes that go with the darkness. Things which the Christian doesn't have room for anymore. The first pair, carousing and drunkenness, that's just partying in the decadent sense. The pathetic path of getting wasted. I love that word, wasted. What a, what a goal. <laughs> Such a beautiful phrase. Let's get wasted. The second pair, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, sins of the flesh, fornication, adultery, brothels, strip clubs, pornography, filthy entertainments. You know, in the original Greek, these verbs, these, I mean, these nouns are, are uh, plural, which means there's just a, a variety of sensual pursuits. And if you know anything about ancient Rome, it was a lot like Los Angeles. So, I mean, you could go in all kinds of directions. All marks of the darkness. The third pair, strife and jealousy, fights, hateful feelings, competitions, pettiness, bitterness, cattiness, selfishness. All nighttime sorts of activities and attitudes. That's not us, he says. Not anymore. That's not what time it is. Christ has come and with him the light of day. The verb that begins verse 13, behave, in the New American Standard and the NIV is really just the word walk. I like that word walk in the Greek language. I, it just pictures that step-by-step conduct of life every day. Let us walk properly, he says, as in the day. Not in these other ways. Drunkenness and sensuality and strife, they don't belong. They don't belong. That time is past. It's daytime now, so you put your armor on. The armor of light. Indeed, more than that, a wonderfully Pauline phrase in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus like a robe of righteousness. He is your very identity, Christian. Wear Him. Live 
in his steps according to his will. That's what life is really all about. Be like Christ in the world, an extension of his love and goodness. So don't live to gratify your desires, but live for the glory of God. One is night and one is day. One is dark and one is light. Isn't that what Jesus did? You know, the disciples came to him one time talking about dinner and stuff, and he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's exactly the attitude we should have. The last phrase in verse 14 reminds us that, that old habits die hard. Sin has its way of calling on us from time to time. Paul says at the end, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Don't give sinful thoughts and desires your attention. Don't plan for your next sin, your next sinful lifestyle thing. Confess those wicked thoughts and agree with God that they're evil and pass them by. Don't make provision for them. Don't dwell on them. Don't plan for them to capture you. He says, put on Christ instead and choose the day. It's so much better in the light. I'm sure some of you are undoubtedly trying to walk with one foot in the light and one foot in the dark. You know that doesn't work? Because you know the narrow path and the wide path? Jesus said there's only two paths. There's a narrow path. The paths go like this. And if you try to put a foot in both, after a while you're going to split in two. <laughs> or you're going to fall off. Because you can't walk the narrow path and the wide path. You can't do it. And you know what? As far as the wide path goes, the road to destruction, the time is over for that stuff. It's not that time anymore. Wake up. You not only have a new identity in Christ as a Christian, but if you are a Christian, you've been given a whole range of spiritual capacities that makes victory over sin within your grasp. And not just victory over sin, like, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore, but joy in holy living. What does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide, He will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. What does that mean? You never have to go that way, ever. You don't have to sin. That's his promise. A promise from God. So don't hang with the night. That's petty, shallow pleasure anyway. Wake up to what real joy is. The joy of Messiah's love, the joy of his redemption, and the power to make you one of the world changers that affects the world for Christ. It's time to get up, folks. Get up. It's going to be a great day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. As the scripture says, you transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to your marvelous light. We thank you for that. What a great God you are. Empower us, Lord, with a vision of the day and a holy disposition to live according to that day.
We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stay.